This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your happy, genial host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Topic of today's podcast is called, or the title is called, Burning Witches, the Three Queuing System, Censorship, and the Literacy Inquisition. So, this podcast is about burning witches and inquisitions and censorship and stuff. But first, let's be clear about something up front, about education in general. The profiteers see education in terms of wealth generation. And I'm talking about Cambia, Lexia, Houghton Mifflin, Harcourt, McGraw-Hill, Pearson, Macmillan, Scholastic, these are all part of the educational industrial complex currently controlling education. And let's not fool ourselves. They are in charge. These are the profiteers. They see literacy as something that must be acquired. You must get it from somebody. And literacy instruction must be bought instructional materials must be paid for, you see. It's all a transaction that involves money. And they are the money changers in the temple of education. But progressive educators, meaning-based educators, don't see human beings in such a limited way. To us, literacy is developed. It's manifested. Literacy is learned. It's not bought. We don't sell literacy. We don't sell literacy instruction. It's not for sale. It's not a transaction. Now, the profiteers see education in much the same way as a slaughterhouse sees cows. They're creating products that will be consumed by the masses. And the masses must acquire their product for it to be consumed. And if a few cows are killed along the way, well, that's just the cost of doing business, isn't it? And if there's research that shows that cows are treated horribly in the process and there are better ways of getting good-tasting protein into our diets and that something else could be healthier, well, that uncomfortable bit of research is ignored or dismissed. After all, they've got billions tied up in their cow-killing machinery. You can't expect them to change just because something else might be better. They've got responsibilities, you see. They're responsible to their shareholders, you see. And they've got to make the decisions that are best for their families, you see. So on with the cow-killing. And the educational cow cow killers go on generating tremendous amounts of wealth while killing the literacy potential of millions. Their wealth-generating factories continue to crank out high-priced, one-size-fits-all, scripted curriculum that disproportionately impact disenfranchised populations. And the achievement gap, which is really an equity gap, widens. However, the social order is maintained with the white majority in charge. 
and in the process, the voice of teachers and students are silenced. And just so there is no confusion on this little tidbit, let me state this in the clearest possible terms. Wealth is being generated at the expense of our children and taxpayers. In the meantime, the profiteers tell the disenfranchised to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And while the disenfranchised explain that they have no boots, much less bootstraps, by which to pull themselves up, the profiteers continue. They grab and they take and they manipulate and they hoard. They're like the rich man who ignored poor brother Lazarus by the side of the road. And in their Pearson publishing boardrooms, they're oblivious to the impact that they're having. They feed like pigs at the public trough. That's what they do. But the question to ask is, how much wealth is enough, Lexia? How high is the sky, they ask us. They control the machinery. Wealth is power. Wealth and power enable the wealthy and powerful to control the narrative. Sensory. They bought and paid for the term science, and they use it relentlessly. Science. And they slap us in the face with it like a dead fish every time we turn around. Science, science, science. Science of reading. Reading science. Research-based reading science. And who can argue with science? Science is objective. Science is pure. Science is good. It proves things. It creates certainty. It enables us to control the world around us. Archimedes said, Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. Science. It's all about leverage, cause and effect. If we do A, B will occur. And if we want B, we just have to find the right A. It's as simple as that, don't you see? If good reading performance is B, we simply need to find the right A to make B occur. Reality is a mechanical device filled with cause-effect phenomena. It's a machine with cogs and pulleys, where one thing makes another thing happen. Everyone knows that. Although systems theory and quantum physics would have something to say about this. But in this mechanical world, to fix a problem, you just rub a little science on it. Science is our savior. Science is our god. It is our balm. To fix a reading problem, you just add a little science to it, like adding a little vanilla extract to frosting. Bingo! Frosting and reading. There is a problem, however, with the science of reading frost and fixing scenario. One of the problems is there wasn't really a reading problem to start with. It was all made up. The crisis in reading was a manufactured crisis 
created so that the wealthy and powerful could become more wealthy and more powerful. And they told us that the reading sky was falling. And some people believed it. They believed that there was a reading problem. Reading test scores are going down, 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 they said. And they trotted out colorful graphs and charts to prove the point. Look, they said, numbers. And everyone in the crowd went, ooh, numbers. They pulled data out of context to create illusions and used false conclusions to create a view of reality that did not replicate the reality it purported to represent. And then they found a media charlatan. Emily Hanford, who was willing to sell her soul for fame and wealth. She could not resist the temptation. And the evil one said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. And here is the big sticking point with the science of reading community and the profiteers selling their science of reading snake oil. The same scientific principles they ask us to apply to reading instructional methods are not applied to identifying problems or solutions. Again, the same scientific principles they ask us to apply to reading instruction, they do not apply to identify, identifying reading problems and reading solutions. That means the idea of a reading crisis is not born of peer-reviewed research data or valid methodology. It's not born of basic scientific principles. The real problem here is that there is no problem. The alleged problem, the cause of the alleged problem, and the solution to the alleged problem are all based on I-thinkisms, perception. It's a manufactured crisis. The profiteers and politicians have used pseudoscience to convince the masses that there is a crisis and that they know both the cause and solution. Pseudoscience is when you start with a predetermined belief and look only for data that supports your predetermined belief. For example, because my kid can't read, they say, there's a reading crisis. Let's go find some data to support my preconceived idea. Because there's a reading crisis, it must be caused by lack of phonics. Let's go find some data. I don't think we teach phonics enough. Let's go find some data. If we teach more phonics, we'll fix the problem. Let's go find some data. Because phonics works for one kid, it must work for all kids. Let's go find some data. Because there's a reading crisis, teachers aren't being prepared correctly. Let's go find some data. But that's not science, is it? Here's the thing about science, that the science of reading community seems not to have grasped. You can't be just a little bit science of reading. You're either a science of reading or you're not. You can't be just a little bit science of reading or a science when it's convenient of reading or a what I think of reading. 
the science of reading community is really, really the pseudoscience of reading. For evidence, the profiteers and politicians and policymakers trot out emotional stories of parents and children. I can't read, the children say sadly, and they show sad pictures with sad children with sad little tears running down their cheeks. And parents tell sad stories. My kid didn't learn, they say with great emotion. And that's proof that there's a problem right there. That's proof that what we're doing in schools doesn't work. And it's proof that you literacy professors, with all your reason and knowledge and research and experience, are teaching pre-service teachers the wrong things in the wrong ways. There's the proof. Right there, they say. And when I ask where, they say, right there. Weren't you listening to the sad stories? There's a problem, they say. And we know the cause, they say. And then they get very dark. Like the witnesses at the Salem witch trials, they point their bony fingers and cry out, it's balanced literacy. I saw them outside, dancing naked in the moonlight and practicing their balanced literacy rituals. Burn them, burn them, burn them. Balanced literacy and the three queuing systems. They're making our cows sick and our children illiterate. And screams of horror and wails of lament cry out, burn them, burn them, burn them. And I looked in the school window, and there they were, guessing at words. No, they say, burn them, burn them, burn them. It's the three queuing systems and balanced literacy and whole language and whole word. Witches, all of them, burn them. And one says, they looked at me, and they gave me the evil eye. They had our children reading books. They were actually reading and enjoying themselves. Oh, the horror of it all. Satanists, burn them. The children, the mothers of liberty wail. What about the children? Who's going to protect the children? And I saw kids selecting their own books. Blasphemy. And the children, the children, they were, they were enjoying reading. No, that can't be. Burn them, burn them, burn them. And there's the Inquisition. The members of the Literacy Inquisition continue on their holy crusade. They're banning books and banning words and banning ideas. Books and words and ideas are dangerous things. They could enable people to think, to think about things and to think critically. And they know we can't have any of that thinking stuff around here. And there's a law now in Minnesota based on the Read Act, sponsored by Representative Heather Edelson. It says that I am not to teach the three queuing systems. I cannot say it. I cannot mention it. I cannot have it on my syllabus. I cannot even think about it. It's dangerous, you see. It's a dangerous thing. 
What about the children? Who will protect the children? But it's censorship. What else do you call it? Suppression? Restriction? Control? Blotting out? If you can't win in the arena of ideas, you suppress ideas. You censor ideas. You eliminate ideas. You don't permit certain words to appear. And that's what it's come to now in the state of Minnesota. Censorship and control. If you can't win your argument in an academic setting, which they can't, if you can't convince people using reason and research, you control, you silence, you threaten, you bully, and you censor. And that's what the science of reading people are doing. In Minnesota, as in other states like Wisconsin, Ohio, Texas, they've passed a law making it illegal to include things like the three queuing systems. I can't include that in my courses. I'll be breaking the law, you see, and they'll send the reading police into my classroom and drag me out in handcuffs. And here's the really, really sick Thing about this literacy inquisition. The inquisitors don't even know what the three queuing system is. Yet they have banned it. It's censored. It shall not appear. They've censored and banned something that they don't even know what is. It is not a strategy. It's not a method it's not something you teach. It's not an approach. It's simply an understanding, a recognition that our brain uses lots of different information to recognize words when creating meaning with print. And that's what reading is, creating meaning with print. Our brain consists of a series of neural networks that all work together. Our brain is not a set of Legos, each working independently, operating separately from each other. Rather, there are interacting and interdependent systems, all communicating, all providing information about words and sentences and meaning and letter sounds during the reading process. This, my friends, is an empirical fact. And empirical means it can be measured or observed. And how do I know? Did I read a study? Did I read a book? Do I listen to a famous person? Did I listen to a radio journalist? Did I read it in a newspaper? Did the Moms for Liberty tell me? Heaven forbid. I've spent years reading research from a wide variety of areas, doing scholarly work, writing books and articles, working with kids. Not a couple months, decades. Like many other literacy experts, I've spent decades, three of them. So, my fine friends, let me describe just some of the empirical evidence that informs us that the brain uses multiple forms of information to create meaning with print. It uses a system of cues or cueing systems. And there are three prominent ones. 
although a case could be made for others, but there are three primary queuing systems. And we've been calling this the three queuing systems so people know what we're talking about. However, now we'll have to call it that which shall not be named. Spreading activation studies. In 1975, Colin and Luftus put forth the spreading activation theory, suggesting that semantic information is organized by semantic distance or relatedness. Semantic means meaning. In other words, things are organized in our brain by associations, by how close they relate to similar things in your brain. For example, when you hear the word cat, you automatically associate it with cat things. Soft, furry, paws, kitty, pet. These things are closely related to the word cat. The neural pathways leading to these things are activated. These things come to mind. What is not activated when you hear the word cat, you don't automatically think of short A words or CVC words or the AT phonogram. You don't think about letter sounds or letter patterns. You think of things. Clearly, we have access to semantic information when we see the word cat in print. And yes, there is orthographic information on the page and stored in the head, but semantic information, meaning ideas, takes precedent over orthographic information. And orthographic refers to letter arrangements and spelling. Now, the priming studies, let's take a look at this. And this is just a basic rudimentary explanation. But Higgins and friends back in 1977 looked at how something before is primed, how something before primes something that comes after in a sentence. Something before primes something that comes after. And again, this is just a very basic overview. But given a sentence, the subjects would have to identify a missing word or they'd be asked to identify words. And subjects were able to identify words that made sense within the sentence, and that's semantic cueing, faster than words that didn't make sense. And again, semantic means meaning. For example, the cat chased a, and the sentence would be followed by the word mouse, or a similar word, round. The cat chased a mouse, the chat chased a round. I guess that's not a good example because a round, a round, uh, a, a sound, no, a pound, a, a laugh. There you go, laugh. Subjects were able to identify the semantically correct word faster. Studying many subjects, many times, over time, the differences were statistically significant. Clearly, Readers were using semantic information, the semantic cueing system, along with letter information, the phonetic cueing system, to recognize words to create meaning. And the same sorts of studies were conducted with sentences that isolated syntax as a cueing mechanism. And syntax refers to grammar and word order. The syntactical information primed the words that follow. 
subjects were able to identify words relying on syntactical information quicker than words that did not. And the difference, differences between many people on many examples was statistically significant. Which is why studying a list of words out of context or words in isolation may have some value, but should always be accompanied by studying words in the context of a sentence. And it shows why these goofy dibbles tests in which students are asked to identify lists of nonsense words and lists of words out of context in 60 seconds, they're timed, is so absolutely kooky and invalid. Now let's take a look at some miscue analysis work. A miscue is when what students say during oral reading does not match what's on the page. It gives us a sense of reading online. The work of Stephen Kuser is incredible here, incredibly helpful. A meaningful miscue is one that makes sense within the sentence. Instead of the dog ran, the student says the dog run. Doesn't match, but it still makes sense. Meaning has not been disrupted. Now, in just one of Kuser's studies, students in third grade were given a science text to read orally, and the miscues were noted. And students who had who scored higher on post-test reading comprehension tests had significantly more miscues. That means they weren't reading for accuracy, for surface structure, but for deep meaning. And that's the whole purpose. Not that you attend to letter features, but for deep meaning. And eye movement studies. They have devices that track people's eye movements as they read text. They see where the eye fixates or stop, which words they skip, and how often they regress or go back. And your eyes do not move in a straight line from left to right as you read. They do not take in each letter. They jump around like hummingbirds. Your brain only makes you think that you're reading in a straight line. It makes it seem like you're reading in a straight line. Your brain is filling in the blanks. These studies show that eyes tend to skip right over words that make sense or are predictable, and that's semantic cueing. They inclu this includes function words like of, the, in, and, as well as predictable words. And in some instances, the eyes fixate right on the predictable words and still inserted a meaningful miscue. Obviously, information from the head semantic and syntactic information is being used with phonetic information to create meaning with print. So, the big finish, what does this mean in reading practice, the three queuing systems? Include writing and sentence mix-up activities in your reading programs to develop students' sense of grammar and word order. This is writing. This needs not be long, three to ten minutes a day. And if you're still hung up about phonics, okay. Include words or writing prompts that reinforce the letter sounds being taught. If I teach the letter a short uh, A vowel sound, I would have a writing prompt that says, describe a time when you were mad, mad. And again, 
clowns. You don't teach the three queuing systems. It's not an either-or situation. You don't teach. These are activities that develop. In the same way, include simple maze or close activities where students have to identify a word based on information on both sides of the target word. These can be created on PowerPoints, done quickly, three to eight minutes, and they can reinforce letter sounds or patterns. Now, if those conducting the great literacy inquisition here in Minnesota and elsewhere, if they would spend just a little time with literacy experts, not educational psychologists, not speech therapists, not reading journalists, but literacy experts. You'd know these things. If you use science, science instead of pseudoscience, you'd know some of these things. But your predetermined beliefs are such that your beliefs determine reality rather than reality determining your beliefs. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. I am your host, Dr. Andy Johnson.